You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. Throughout 2017, whenever the topic of China came up, the answer was always the same. We'll know more after the 19th National Party Congress at the end of the year. For 10 months, investors assumed that stability would reign in the Middle Kingdom and that Xi Jinping would consolidate his power in late October in Beijing. On October 18th, after a 205-minute speech to open proceedings, Xi joined Mao Zedong as the only living party leader to have enshrined an ideology into the party's constitution named after himself. Stability had been maintained and power consolidated. But what now? How will Xi use this position as the most powerful leader of the Communist Party in a generation? And what does it mean for the rest of the world? This week on Adventures in Finance, China. Today is the 25th of January 2018 and welcome to episode 51 of Adventures in Finance. Uh, Coming to you from all over the world this week, I am sat in Dubai uh, and a long way to my left is James in the Cayman Islands. Producer James, how are you mate? Not too bad, not too bad. I think uh, everyone's suffering from storms, he's suffering from sandstorms over there. Uh, No, I'm suffering from perfect weather. Oh. Uh, low 70s, no humidity, um, Crimea River. It's uh, <laughs> weather is beautiful here. Also, also to my left is uh, Alex in New York this time, I believe. Yes, it's a it's a beautiful 45 degrees here, which is a big reprieve. So, ah, <laughs> uh, uh, yes, it's so nice to be doing this from somewhere where the weather is perfect. It makes a real change. Um, now. This week, we have a lot to get into. We're going to talk about China. As we head into 2018 with the 19th Party Congress firmly in our rearview mirror, we thought it was a great time to take a look at what might be in store for China, find out how things may be changing now that 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 once every five-year event is out of the way. And to help us, we have two fantastic guests, Tian Yang from Variant Perception and my old friend Louis Garve from Gavcal in Hong Kong. And we'll get to that shortly but before we do uh it's time for our long short segment and uh alex i am going to let you go first this week seeing as i stole the honor last week i think okay very good so i am long uh stock indexes or indices indexes and in, uh, which which name do you prefer you know i am I'm, I'm i'm agnostic you can use either or i will i will let you get away with either okay very good so i am long both indexes and indices uh there is a <laughs> story in the Financial Times that there are now, this is 
almost too weird to believe, but two, 3.28 million indices, uh, according to the Index Industry Association. Holy cow. So I that's, knew it was bad. I had no idea it was that bad. Yeah, so, so most of them cover stock markets. Not all of them do. Um, very interesting, though, because the whole point of an index is it's not made for investment purposes necessarily. It's made to track how stocks are doing, and then if people want to invest in it and get the return of the stock market, they can do so. But if you have to choose among three point something million to get the return of, of the stock market, it kind of takes a little of the, of the purposeful lack of complexity out of it. Well, we, we, we have ourselves a, a self-perpetuating circle here. If, if the stocks are supposed to track the indices uh, and the indices outnumber the stocks, I'm not quite sure where that leaves us. Maybe there's some statisticians out there that can probably write in and Explain to me, but I, you know, I knew there was um, in the US, I think last year we crossed the line where there were more indices than stocks, which mm -hmm. was baffling to me at the time. But 3.2 million indices that is lunacy. Although I'm not sure if going long them now is your best trait. I mean, maybe you should have been long them for the last few years. There seems to have been some sort of explosion in indices then. Ah, I, it could, could, be a, could be a bubble in, uh, in indices themselves. Well, it's possible. It's possible. It's possible. Well, it seems you've led off with your uh, long. I am going to lead off with my long. Um, and I am long a 51-year-old ex-soccer player, uh, George Weah, okay. who was sworn in this week as the new president of Liberia. Uh, George Weah was a phenomenal football player. He was won the, um, uh, the Ballon d'Or, the World Player of the Year, uh, back in the late 80s, maybe the 90s. It's, uh, I'm racking my brain to try and remember. But this is a, this is a fantastic story. You know, he was a hero to the country of Liberia. Um, and his uh, election and his swearing in this week marks the first peaceful democratic transition of power in almost 50 years in that country you know it's a, it's a very poor country mm. he's an inspirational figure uh and so hopefully things will be looking up for little liberia uh, out there on the african coast so i am long george Weah, god bless him a great footballer and now hopefully hopefully a great head of state for liberia now do they have a do they have a serious soccer team or as you would call it a football team in Liberia? Well, what do you mean as I would call it a football team? It's called a football team. Don't be throwing that at me. You, you, you call your game football, we'll call our game football. Only one of them is one where a ball is kicked with a foot. We'll leave it at that, shall we? Uh, um, no, look, I don't think... I mean, George Weah is by far the most famous and by far the most talented footballer ever to come out of, uh, of Liberia. I mean, he really was a, you know, a world star Um and I don't think they've seen his like since. And who knows how many years it will be until they see another player with his talent. But, uh, you know, it's a great story. He's, he's a yeah. hero to kids. It's, it's engaged the youth in that country. And, you know, they've been through a 15-year civil war. It's, uh, it's about time Liberia had some good news to celebrate. So George Weah is absolutely my long this week. Very good. Uh, well, that leaves us short. Um, why don't I kick this one off, seeing as I let you go first with the longs. I am. <laughs> I hate to do it because I know I'm poking that badger with uh -oh. the spoon again, but uh, this week I'm short ICOs. Oh uh, my there god! Was a, there was an Ernst and Young report that uh, came out. Uh, uh, I think yesterday, certainly earlier this week, that said that more than ten percent of the funds raised through initial coin offerings are lost or stolen by hackers. <laughs> now. That's an extraordinary amount of money, particularly when you realize it was a just shy of $4 billion that was raised last year. So that's wow. almost $400 million stolen by hackers uh, out of ICOs. I mean, it's just amazing. This, and this is you know, mostly through, uh, through phishing. So 
you've got to think that uh, there is a sign here that perhaps the people getting involved in Bitcoin aren't as technically savvy as they ought to be on the basis that they get fooled by phishing scams. I mean, hackers were stealing about $1.5 million a month in ICO proceeds. Uh, you know, nobody is uh, praising the Bitcoin phenomenon more than the hackers, it would seem, who, <laughs> between them, they don't have to launder money through the dark web or through cryptocurrency anymore. They can just steal it straight from the source. It's, uh, it really is cutting out the middleman. Yeah, it's a, it's a shame that the money's lost or stolen um, by hackers when you would hope it'd be lost or stolen by the people leading the ICOs, which is uh, another place the money goes. Well, yeah, no, exactly right. I mean, this is it's it's this is one of this is one of my big fears over all cryptocurrencies that the the people trying to steal it know a lot more about the technology than most of the people trying to hang on to it, and I think mm. that's a recipe for disaster. So this uh, Ernst and Young report just confirmed that. But once again. Uh, this is a public service announcement for all Bitcoin maniacs out there. I do not, repeat, not think Bitcoin is a complete fraud or is going to go to zero. Uh, I still think the technology is remarkable and game-changing. So please, 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 if you have any criticism of uh, my thoughts on Bitcoin, feel free to send me an email to james at realvision.com. That's james at realvision.com. And uh, feel free to use the strongest language possible. Should you actually be giving my real... Real Vision address out to to the world. Do you know what? Should we risk it and see how many emails you get? <laughs> I say let's risk I, it. I, oh I, man, I'll, I'll go short at double figures. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, boy. Okay, right. Back to the action. So, Alex, uh, having having um, having poked the badger with a spoon mm -hmm. and manfully stood up and given people uh, a right to reply. Uh, that's James at realvision.com. Um, time for your short, my friend. What are you short this week? Yeah, I am short um, lifeguard buffness. You're short? Wait, what? Who what? Uh, lifeguard buffness, the, the buffness of, of lifeguards. <laughs> oh, yes. Okay, now you explain it that way, it makes more sense. Uh -huh. So there's a story um, out of Australia that they were flying this um, lifeguard drone, which has a very Australian name, the Little Ripper, which... It, oh, yeah. it sounds great with an Australian accent, I bet. But um, they were flying it in this beach just as a as a practice, and they actually saw two men um, swimming in powerful surf and, and potentially set to get overpowered by the waves. And it would have taken a long time, and it would have risked the lifeguard's life if they had actually swam out. So even though it was just a practice mission, they threw down from the drone a rescue pod the swimmers grabbed the pod and, and they made their way to shore and, and they were completely fine. Um, so it's a really great story. Uh, but the guy who um, was running the pod is a lifeguard himself. His name is Jai Sheridan. Um, and while he is buff, it seems future lifeguards might just uh, need good drone skills and they won't need those those kind of Baywatch bodies anymore. So. So this lifeguard is, buffness is, is a major short. This is fantastic for, for normal shaped men everywhere. Yeah, although I thought the whole point was you got to, you know, sit out there on the beach and flick that whistle around it. It's not quite as sexy if you're down there looking at your, your uh, well, tablet. Well, I mean, if the weather's bad or it's too hot, you can stay home and fly the drone. I mean, this is, this is great news. Yeah, that's right. I'm not sure, I dare say, the female listeners to the podcast will um, be cancelling holidays to Australia <laughs> left and right. But uh, 
All right. Well, that's that's. I like this one. I, 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 I'm going to go short with you along with this. This is right. this is fantastic news. Come on board. All right. Well, look. Let's um, let's move on to our feature this week, which uh, revolves around China. And hopefully, as we go into a new year, it's a good time to get some perspective on any changes that might be happening in China, because it does feel like we're at an inflection point with uh, the 19th Congress out the way, Xi Jinping cementing his position as the country's leader. And uh, along with that cementing a position comes a certain freedom to perhaps change the way they do things. So we have two fantastic guests joining us to give us their insight onto what might be happening. Uh, shortly, we'll be talking to my dear friend Louis Garve of GavCal in Hong Kong. Uh, but first, it's time to welcome Tian Yang of uh, Variant Perception to the show. Tian's joining us from Beijing. Tian, thanks for joining us. Um, it's great to have you with us. Uh, I want to jump in straight away with uh, a question about uh, the, the, the kind of the closing of the 19th Congress, because we went into that basically the whole of last year with people saying that we had to keep stability, everything had to be managed until we got through that Congress. Obviously, it finished in November. It's behind us now. We have a new year starting. So I wanted to get a sense of exactly what it was that, that we had to kind of keep stable. Uh, and now that that, uh, that event is in our rearview mirror, what do you think that does in terms of freeing up uh, Xi Jinping to change his agenda or strengthen some of the moves he makes to, to control the economy? So, so really, where you want to start in China is to actually look at where leading indicators are going and then use that to put kind of the political discussion um, in the correct context. So what we're seeing right now with Chinese growth is that leading indicators have rolled over somewhat. So it suggests that growth is going to slow, but there's not necessarily um, anything too scary kind of on the horizon. So, you know, the likes of real money growth has slowed a little bit. Um, if you look at, say, the PMI surveys, in particular, the supply delivery times component, you can see that. Um, supply delivery times have shortened, indicating that there's a bit more slack within the industrial supply chain. So there's a few signs showing that growth is going to slow a little bit from last year. But the is actually coming against a backdrop of quite tight liquidity conditions. So one of the big moves in 2017 was that Chinese 10-year yields actually rallied quite a lot and hit uh, 4%. At the same time, the PBOC was obviously uh, cracking down on you know, wealth management products, on shadow finance. And so we saw that for a lot of the non-bank financial institutions, their rate of balance sheet growth uh, slowed quite dramatically. So what you actually have in China is growth slowing a bit, still quite high liquidity conditions. But at the same time, the Fed has also obviously been, you know, there's a few hikes pricing. It's going to potentially tighten policy this year. So it's very likely the PBOC is actually going to shadow the Fed policy and continue to tighten, even though liquidity is already quite tight and growth is rolling over. So... What we do see in China is that, you know, even independent of the political events, growth will actually start to disappoint this year. And then, obviously, on top of that, if you have, um, you know, a lot of the stated reforms around uh, changing the composition of growth, right, obviously higher quality, you know, focusing on tech, focusing on consumer, um, you know, there's definitely going to be some China slowing. Um, there's obviously this five-year seasonality pattern where typically after every five-year plan and you know, there's an attempt to push reform and growth does slow a little bit. So I think that's not, that's kind of in line. Um, I would say this is probably not too controversial in terms of um, consensus market opinion right now. But I do think there are certain parts of the market where um, this isn't actually uh, being quite fully priced in. And so in particular, related to this, one particular um, kind of investment theme we like this year is actually to sell the Korean one. And in particular, we're actually like going long 
uh, the Chinese um, RMB against Korean won. So long CNH short KRW. Um, this is actually quite attractive because uh, right now what's happening is that Korea is ultimately still heavily dependent on China. You know, 25% of all Korean exports actually do go to China. And um, if you look at their business cycles, it's you know, highly synchronized. What we've had in 2017 is that obviously you've had this wave where China is doing well. You know, there was this global, global synchronized upswing. Um, Korea obviously had very, very good um, export performance, but a lot of this is starting to roll over. So in addition to kind of the China slowing, also in Korea, domestically, a lot of the leading indicators are rolling over as well. So yield curves are flattening, you know, indicators of kind of inventory circulars within the, uh, the export sectors also um, slow quite dramatically. But the Korean won has actually rallied a lot, um, and the Bank of Korea actually hiked rates. So you, you've actually created this situation where the won has rallied um, relative to to the RMB to, a, to kind of a major, major support level. So if you actually look at the chart, it's kind of um, quite a significant kind of five-year support level around the 160, 165 range where, where we've kind of been trading, and we're actually starting to bounce from there. So, you know, I think this is a, a very attractive theme to keep our eye on actually position for um, this year on the back of China. In terms of China itself, I would say because there is this kind of, you know, probably over um, overly, you know, that's probably a bit too overly focused on, on policy that, you know, everyone is aware there's going to be a slowing. So I think domestic China plays might not actually um, be as interesting as kind of looking for, you know, the pockets of the global macro space where this China slowdown isn't um, as discounted. And there certainly we think Korea is um, quite a big um, outlier at the moment. So I'm curious if politics is overemphasized in China, is this just another sign that China's becoming more like other global economies that are, you know, if you're talking about the U.S. economy, you're probably going to look at where corporate earnings are, where perhaps sentiment is, where we are in the economic cycle, and and not who just took power, although that's maybe in the, somewhere in the top five. Is China becoming maybe more mixed in what contributes to its economic growth? And as another question, what are people underemphasizing if they're overemphasizing political policy? Um, yeah, yeah, actually, that's a great question. So. I think I will characterize it as, as um, the, the, the main issue with political catalysts is that the lead lag relationships are highly variable. So if you can't really use it, in our opinion, to form kind of the core of your thesis, you need to kind of have it as if it happens, it potentially works um, in your favor. So, um, you know, I, I, think, I don't think it's wrong to actually realize that there is kind of these various political kind of um, events, right, that can potentially influence policy. You know, in particular, you know, we do know China's obviously the government's a lot more heavily involved, right, especially if they push infrastructure investment. Um, we know, obviously, central bank independence is kind of a lot less in China, right? The PBOC and the government are going to work a lot more in sync in terms of directing policy. So certainly you can't ignore it. But I think it's being positioned the same kind of, you know, if you align with the indicators, you'll kind of be um, positioned the same way, right? So. You know, at the beginning of 2016, that was a time when we were actually very, very bullish on China, when, when I would say most of the consensus was very bearish. You know, there was a lot of calls that, you know, the RMB was going to collapse, you know, um, Chinese growth was going to collapse. Um, but what you saw at the time was that leading the cases were already turning up, um, and that with leading the cases turning up, then when the government starts talking about easing policy, talk about supporting growth, that's when they're going to be able to actually um, see, the, see the impact straight away and change the market narrative, right? So... You know, even though the turn kind of happened at the beginning of 16, the PBOC had actually been easing policy most of, for most of 2015. So, you know, if you just watch kind of um, the central banks or just watch government 
um, or just watch kind of the, um, the the noise or the press releases, then what you would have, your the opinion would have been that okay, they've started easing the big, towards the beginning of 15, and you'll have probably reacted a bit too early. But so it's instead, if you kind of just watch for when these things happen and then wait for leading case to turn up, that's probably where, where the most powerful combination is. And in, in that sense, I think this actually applies to kind of all, all the kind of major economies, right? Even like the US, when we actually think about poli- uh, safe monetary policy, for example, clearly, obviously, you know, rates, you know, where, where policy rates are set is very important, but it's not the only determinant of actual liquidity conditions and what's actually going to ultimately drive um, asset prices. What you really care about is is its impact on the private sector as well. So, you know, something we focus very heavily here at Verum Perception is this concept of excess liquidity, um, which is essentially looking at kind of narrow money growth minus economic growth, right? So it's this proxy for how much liquidity is being created in the system overall that's not being used by the real economy, and which therefore tends to be excess and tends to flow into asset prices and offer that support. And so here, the reason we look at, say, narrow money growth is because it doesn't just capture central bank actions. Right, it has to also capture commercial bank actions. So, you know, this, you know, the U.S. obviously a very good example right now, right? So people are saying, okay, quantitative tightening, you know, rates are going up, liquidity conditions are tightening. Well, that that doesn't necessarily have to be a one for one, right? Because if say suddenly, um, you know, animal spirits pick up, uh, commercial banks want to start lending, they start lowering lending standards, demand for loans picks picks up, then there could actually be quite a lot of, um, you know, thing and money creation from the commercial banking system. That can even potentially offset um, the kind of the start of quantitative tightening from the Fed. So, you know, within our framework in terms of thinking about uh, policy drivers, you know, it's clearly something we need to be aware of. Uh, but really, the key really is to be kind of aligned with where the indicators are going. Um, the analogy is kind of like, you know, you want to sail where you want to figure out the direction of the wind and then sail that way and then hope that a lot of these kind of catalysts come through. Just to zoom out a little bit, and you touched on the old economy versus the new economy, if you had to give a grade, maybe, on how effective China has been at making the transition from an industrial and, and you know maybe agrarian commodity-based economy to a consumer-driven and technology-driven economy, obviously a long project, but where are they in that, and how would you grade their progress? I, I think progress has actually been uh, very, very good. Um, you know... Historically, say this is kind of what economists talk about, right? The, the middle income trap, where historically it's been very, very difficult for um, you know emerging market, emerging economies to kind of reach, do that initial catch-up growth, and then really kind of um, power on from there. You know, the only kind of successful stories have been you know like the Taiwan, South Korea, um, you know maybe Japan, but obviously in just in terms of population, the size, these have been relatively uh, small economies compared to China. Um, but I think, you know, given given the size of China, I think, and you know, the, the the kind of infrastructure you need to actually build up, I think it's they've been able to kind of do things in parallel. Where, you know, China's overnight become leader in a lot of kind of you know fintech areas, right? Say global payments, you know, that that's something where there's a lot more you know mobile payments, you know, microtransactions um, in China, right? With the consumer, where the ecosystem's actually a lot more developed um, than, than in the West, um, and indeed, there's you know. Uh, certain technologies that are actually being developed in China first that's going abroad, right? So, you know, Dr. bike sharing, you know, being one of the most famous ones recently where, you know, the concept kind of really took off in China and they're now trying to go global with it. Um, so, so I think the, the balance has actually been quite good where because you've had this huge internal market, it's been, um, 
China has been able to kind of experiment with a lot of these things within its own backyard and then kind of trying to figure things out and transition. Um, and hasn't really necessarily had to deal with what a lot of probably medium-sized um, economies have had to do historically, which is, you know, they're overly dependent on global demand, overly dependent on the kind of developed economies. So that as those cycles turn, what they do domestically matters a bit less. I think China is actually striking a, um, a actually reasonable line down the middle. Uh, so overall, I think, yeah, I mean, there's, I think, you know, in terms of transition, they're doing all the right things. The problem really isn't that, you know, the transition's wrong or that they can't. The problem is still that um, in the, in the catch-up phase, when you grow by using so much debt, you have to recognize the actual kind of built-up losses within the system. Um, so that, that's really the problem, right? So it's more how you kind of recognize those losses and how you deal with those losses rather than necessarily uh, the transition. I think the transition is going pretty well. The key is more, um, will there be enough kind of um, a pickup in growth that allows all the previous kind of built-up losses or the kind of um, uh, low return investments where to be effectively amortized over time, right? Where, you know, your, your consumer and your tech sector pick up enough to, to allow you to kind of um, inflate away effectively the, the kind of losses from the old economy and the industrial sectors. I, I think that's the challenge. Um, and, you know, and if you understand that, then you can kind of really understand the context of a lot of the, the global policies China is pushing, right? So obviously there's talk about one by one road. Obviously, you know, in 16, 17, Chinese companies being on this acquisition kind of rampage right through the global markets where a lot of it is about trying to take the existing wealth and resources generated from the say the old economy or commodity-based industry manufacturing and trying to acquire technologies acquire um you know new new concepts right related to say industry 4.0 and so forth to try and really transform the economy and to try and generate that productivity growth so i think they are trying to do all the right things um and really that that's really what you can do but you know, the, 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 the fundamental question is still is more if you have a lot of these, you know, if you have too much debt and there are losses going in the system, what do you do with it? And that's still something that hasn't been, been resolved. And that's really kind of, I guess, the bare thesis around China in terms of where, where the focus is. Great question. I'll, I'll turn it back to you on that one. And j- just to add in the mix, I mean, there has been a popular bear case on China, obviously, for, for many years that becomes almost apocalyptic in, in nature, referring not to just China, but all of the global growth picture since it's so reliant on China. I, I guess, where, where are they, obviously, in terms of the debt, but also what do you make of that kind of scary bear case that, that we've all heard about China's debt is unsustainable and, and they're going to have to go through some major shakeup that's that's going to threaten growth in every country in the world? So, so I'm, I'm sympathetic to, to the logic, because obviously if you follow the train of logic, through, it, it, does, um, it does make sense. I think that the issue is more the assumptions that you make at the start and whether, whether those are valid, right? So I think there's a few cases, there's, there's some special cases about China, right? One is obviously a lot of that is um, denominated in local currency and not foreign currency. So, so this, is, this is a very, very important difference compared to a lot of historical um, kind of credit crises, right? So the, the closest analogy probably being like Japan, where you know they're still running obviously absurdly high levels of debt to GDP, but you haven't had this kind of crisis, right? You know, shorting JGB has obviously been the widowmaker trade for kind of, you know, since the 2000s, kind of you know, a lot of macro funds trying to do that. Um, and I think China is kind of following that similar path. Where, well, on the one hand, because you have a lot of debt that's um, domestic currency, uh, it's quite hard for the market to force your hand um, to kind of recognize losses immediately. And the second thing really is um, cultural in terms of um, political preference. 
for, for addressing the debt problem, right? Because once it's local, then it's your choice and what you want to do with it. Obviously, for, for kind of uh, more free market um, oriented philosophies, right? So, you know, the, the likes of, you know, in America, you know, in Europe, then there's, there's a lot of times where there's a recognition that there's good bankruptcy law. It makes sense to recognize losses so that uh, you can clean up balance sheets and move on. Um, but I think this kind of um, uh, mentality isn't quite as prevalent in, in Asia. And, you know, if you look at China and Japan, where there's, there's more emphasis on kind of status quo continuity. So, you know, that there's like a, you know, there's like a saying in Chinese, uh, you know, where you'd say you try and cross the river by feeding out the stones, right? So if you, you know, where you, you take a step at a time, right? You know, dip your foot and you feel where the next stone is, you know, if it's stable and you walk. So that there's a lot of, there's this general mentality to move slowly, increments, and then shift, and not this kind of recognize all the loss at once, you know, clean it up, move on um, kind of mentality. So I think those are the kind of two things where it makes a lot more sense in kind of Western free market-based economies. That isn't quite true in China's case. So it allows kind of the... the the, the the sequence of events to probably play out where it will be a lot closer to Japan, where it's you know a long drawn out process. You know, Japan's still not over, right? And I, I think that's probably going to be a lot closer to the China case than any kind of this um, apocalypse type event. Oh, and and very importantly, actually, a third key point here is obviously the capital account, where again, if you look at the capital flow data, you know, China FX reserves inflows, that that clampdown on capital outflows and indeed leakages have been obviously very, very successful, right? So if you're able to get control of your capital account, then you don't necessarily have to have this currency crisis. Because, you know, if you think back to the kind of impossible trinity of um, essentially independent monetary policy, free capital flows, and free floating exchange rates, you can't have all three. But in China's case, what they've done is try to give up cap free, free flow of capital, right? They're controlling it a lot more closely. And so by, by, by doing that, they've actually, and you, and you can see in the data, so because they're able to get hold of the capital account, then you're able to kind of run monetary policy and keep a re uh, reasonably stable um, exchange exchange rate. I think generally speaking, you want to strategically, obviously, you want to allocate where there's a big internal market, right, and where people are underinvested. I think China certainly fits, but in the short term, there's clearly going to be bumps in the road. But kind of as, as I said a bit earlier, I think where where the opportunity is in terms of expressing the short China story is not necessarily something directly related to China, right? Where you know, if you look at the likes of Korea those are probably going to be areas that are going to react a lot more. You know, even if you are bearish in China, you believe in, in the apocalypse case, um, you know, the things that ultimately move the most and help you make the most money is not the most obvious one, right? If everybody in the world recognizes that it's going to be a kind of, you know, R&B devaluation event, that everyone's positioned for it, it's probably not going to be the thing that reacts the most. Um, so I think, I think it's more a case of looking for things that are correlated that, to China but that are directly influenced. And I think Korea definitely stands out as where there's kind of one of the biggest divergences between where we see China going and what, what the market is pricing. Hmm. Okay, very good. Tian Yang of Variant Perception, thanks so much for your time. Where can people find more of your work? Uh, yeah, so, you know, I think we're mainly an institutional service. So for institutional, um, you know, uh, professional investors, then obviously we are an independent research provider. Uh, so we operate basically a, a subscription model. Uh, if you're interested, you can look at our website, uh, variantperception.com. Um, obviously, for uh, more casual users, you know, we do obviously also maintain a blog, and um, you know, we, we try and keep in contact with kind of the general finance community as well by appearing in you know, podcasts like yourselves here as well. So um, that, that's probably the, the main kind of um, avenues. Uh, Tian, thanks so much for your time today. Cool. Thanks very much. Cheers. So I thought it was interesting. He, he made that point that 
politics, looking at politics is, is not a very good way to see where China's going, at least in, in the short term, since the outcomes can be so variable. And, and also since politics is, is taking a little bit of a, a backseat to, uh, to what's actually going on in the Chinese economy in a way that makes it more reminiscent of, of other countries. Yeah, it's, I mean, there's there's clearly a shift. Um, I think you, you you kind of get a sense when these things happen, and it does seem to me as though some of the numbers coming out suggest that there has been a shift. And and one man I know who will have a lot of information on on whether that shift is taking place, and if so, what it means, is a very good friend of mine from GavCal in Hong Kong, uh, Louis Garvalo. He's not in Hong Kong. He's up in the snow-capped mountains of Canada. So, Louis, welcome to Adventures in Finance. Thank you very much, Grant. Always good to catch up. So, so you are currently uh, in uh, in Canada, enjoying the snow instead of uh, in China, in, enjoying the uh, in Hong Kong, enjoying the nice weather. Um, bunch of stuff yeah, going on. Two hundred po- two hundred pollution reading today in Hong Kong. So oh, it's uh, yeah, it's nice. It's nice to not be there this week. Yeah, right. Good time to be in, in, in peaceful Canada. So as we, as we head into a new year, um, we just thought it was a great chance to take stock of what's happening in China and get a sense from someone on the ground. And, and you were the first name that jumped to mind. So I wanted to just um, get a general sense from you overall uh, before we get into some specifics. And, and just now that the Congress is out the way, uh, get your sense of, of how things stand as uh, you know, the setup for 2018, if you like. Well, I think we've just had a very, very important policy shift in China. Uh, you know, I've, you and I have spoken several times over the years, and you know, I've always tended to have a fairly constructive view about China. Um, I've always tended to, you know, yeah, be fairly, fairly positive about the place. And the reason I was mostly positive about the place was uh, I always looked at it through Charlie Munger's prism of saying, "Look, show me the incentives." and I'll tell you the outcome. Uh, you know, that's what Charlie Munger always says. And in China, the incentive was always to deliver as much growth as possible. Specifically, you know, whether you were the mayor of Wuhan, the party secretary of Anhui province, the governor of Shandong, you were told when you were sent out into the boonies, you were told, hey, if you want to make it back to, uh, to Beijing one day and get a bigger job, go out there and show us what you can do, deliver strong growth. Um, and so you could almost always bet your bottom dollar that China would always hit certain growth targets, that you would always have, you know, property investments approved, new factories approved, uh, basically everything being rubber stamped, and that growth in China would continue uh, growing, growing strongly. The big change that we saw with the 19th Party Congress was basically Xi Jinping stood in front of the 3,600 party members this fall and told them, guys, you're no longer going to be measured just on growth. Growth is still important, of course, but from now on, so is pollution. So is social housing. So is education. And we're going to measure you on a whole bunch of different things. Um, and I think this really changes the, the parameters through which we should, look China, uh, we should look at China. Because for years, what you could kind of always count on is, A, China would always deliver a certain amount of growth for the world. And B, because of that, China could be counted on to always add over capacity into our system. Um, you know, we've, been, we've had 20 years of deflation, which did correspond to 20 years of China's rise. Um, and why? Because China was always adding over capacity into the system. Um, I think the question investors should ask themselves today is, 
is this going to be the case uh, for the next five, 10 years? Very clearly, things are already changing. Imagine for a second, Graham, that you're the mayor of Wuhan, and you're sitting in that hall, and Xi Jinping is now telling you, from now on, I'm going to look at you uh, and how you do for your town on pollution. I'm going to look at you and how you do on social housing and so forth. What do you do when you come back uh, to Wuhan? Well, I think the first thing you do is you say, all right, boys, no more coal. From now on, we're using just natural gas. And so you see the price of natural gas double in a couple months in China. So just right, right off the bat, boom. Um, you start to see shortages of natural gas, um, which creates uh, distortion and, and, and production issues all over the place. Um, so I guess the point I'm making is a very simple one. From now on, uh, I think we should expect uh, more growth disappointments from China, number one. And number two, we should expect more inflationary pressures uh, from China. If you look at, and it's already happening, if you look at things like steel, like cement, it's very interesting because prices are shooting up in China and production is actually going down. Uh, now, this is fairly new. Uh, you know, in the past, whenever prices go up in China, you can bet your bottom dollar that production would go up, that basically higher prices triggers a supply response fairly quickly. This is not happening. In fact, what we're seeing is the other way around. Production being curtailed and thus prices going up. Do it, just Maybe just say more about that. Like, Do you think this is going to be a shift in the Chinese economy over the next five years that ultimately will lead to greater and more economically sustainable growth over the next you know, decades to come? Or and maybe it'll lag, the growth will lag in the short term, or are we sort of maybe seeing the end of China's greatest growth years? Uh, I think we've definitely seen the end of China's greatest growth years. You know, the, the double-digit nominal growth that we had for basically two decades uh, are now behind us. Uh, we are heading towards uh, lower growth rates, and I think you see it on a number of fronts. Uh, not only, of course, the, the change in government policy as regards to inflate, uh, as regards to pollution, um, as regards to adding overcapacity willy-nilly, um, but also um, in its policies regarding leverage. Um, you know, for years, China didn't seem to care uh, of the increase in leverage uh, that you saw throughout the economy. Um, and, and frankly, you know, I argued many times, it didn't really need to care for that increase in leverage because it was starting from such a low base that it could afford that increase in leverage, especially when you looked at the simultaneous rise in, uh, in domestic savings. Um, the reality, of course, now is that China's demographically is, is starting to tip over, like a lot of Western countries. Uh, as, as you age, you save less. Um, and with that comes also a shift in, uh, in China's relationship to leverage. Um, and so today you are seeing shifts in government policy when it comes to you know, adding capacity, adding growth, regardless of the cost. And you're seeing a very important shift when it comes to, to leverage. And there is a very clear uh, government policy desire to maybe not reduce leverage, but definitely not see it increase from here. So, you know, you look at this from many different angles. And yes, growth, growth in China is going to be less strong. Um, and, you know, for all of us sitting in the Western world, the question is, is this inflationary or deflationary for the rest of us? Now, you might argue, well, it's deflationary because, you know, less growth from China uh, must equal deflation. I'm not so sure. 
uh, I think it could very well be inflationary because it means less overcapacity, less, uh, you know, less ability for us to basically undercut Western workers constantly by transferring production over to China, uh, where production is probably being produced at the wrong price. Yeah, yeah, that, this, that, that segues perfectly to my next question, Louis, which is uh, this, uh, this idea that, that we, we are seeing a, a structural shift in China where, where it's moving towards lower growth and perhaps uh, exporting inflation instead of deflation. Do you think this is more of a problem, perhaps this transition for China or for the West? Because it seems to me like it may be a bigger problem for the West than it actually is for China. Uh, you know, you know me, uh, Grant. I always like to answer a question with another question. <laughs> yes, um, I know. So, you know what what is what is the most interesting development of the past, say, six months? Uh, for me, uh, it's the simultaneous rise in U.S. bond yields and fall in the U.S. dollar, and frankly, fall in the U.S. dollar against every currency out there. The U.S. Yeah. dollar has been very, very weak, while U.S. bond yields. Uh, have been going up. Now, you know, you've spent, like me, you've spent your fair share of time in Asia and in other emerging markets. That's a typical emerging market thing to do, right? Having rising yield and falling currency simultaneously is what you start to see in emerging markets when they start basically have, having leaned too far above their skis, having, you know, spent too much money, having had budget deficits run out of control. Um, that's what you start to see that happen, rising yield and falling currency. That's what you're seeing in the U.S. today. So to answer your question, is that a problem for the U.S. or is that a problem or the Western world in general, or is that a problem for uh, Asia or China? I think it's more a problem for the Western world. Why? Um, you may remember this because you know, we've, known, we've known each other a long time. Back in 2005, I wrote a book called Our Brave New World. Um, the thesis of that book was pretty simple. Um, the thesis of the book was, look, companies do three things. They design the good, manufacture the good, sell the good. The smart companies today are shifting the, the and this was written back in 2005, they pass on the manufacturing to whoever wants to do it in China. They focus on design, they focus on sales. And in the book, I used Apple as an example, I used Ikea, I used Enzyme Mortz, and I called these guys platform companies. Now, when you think of it, this is how almost every Western company has organized itself for the past 15 years. Um, and it's been a very successful business model. Uh, the question is, are we coming to the limit uh, of that business model? Uh, let me put it even another way. The current bull market that we're in, in, a, in essence, when you read the press, when you listen to the media, rests on two pillars. The first pillar is thanks to big data, thanks to artificial intelligence, thanks to globalization, companies today are very diligent with capital and, um, and we have the highest return on invested capital we've ever had. Uh, you know, everything is optimized to the very top so that, yes, we should pay more for equities because companies are smarter with capital. And that's fine. So that's your first pillar. Your second pillar is, oh, and we live in a world of massive overcapacity um, and so there's massive deflation constantly, and um, and uh, thus central banks need to print money, print money, print money. Uh, okay, that's fine. But how do you get from one to two? I mean, if companies are super smart with their data, 
uh, if companies are super smart with their data and, you know, and, they're, and super efficient with their allocation of capital, how do we have all the success capacity in the system? Well, the bottom line is that there must be some idiots in the system who always overinvest. Um, and that idiot has been China. The question is, what if it isn't China anymore? What if China is saying, you know what, I'm done increasing leverage, I'm done adding capacity willy-nilly, I'm changing my business model, um, then what does that leave for the rest of the world? Because if you look at the Western world, frankly, in the past 10, 15 years of very low interest rates, where have we added capacity? You know, you think of it, when was the last time a factory was built in the West, a new power plant? Um, so we spent 10 or 15 years basically piggybacking of the overinvestments done in China. What if this is now done? Um, then, uh, then the inflation risk could be much greater than people anticipate. What does that mean, I guess, in the medium and long term for commodity prices if we're seeing this shift out of China? Uh, that's that's a very tricky point. Um, you know, for years, uh, you could have argued that there was a sort, in our research 10 years ago or 15 years ago, we called it the Wenji Bao put in a sort of response to the Greenspan puts on equities. We called it the Wenji Bao put. Wenji Bao was the, the, the previous uh, premier in China. Um, the Wenji Bao put on commodities, that basically if growth fell enough, China would step in with new capacity, new investments to relaunch growth, thereby triggering a new demand for commodities. Uh, so you could argue for years we had the Wenji Bao put uh, on, on commodities that China would come in with, with a bid once growth fell, fell hard enough, just like you had the Greenspan put on, on equities. Um, uh, of course, um, you could say, well, the Wenji Bao put hasn't really worked that great for the past five years. Um, and instead, what we saw was serious consolidation uh, in the commodity um, in the commodity world. What I find interesting today in the commodity space is that just as China is saying, basically, look, we're done leveraging up, uh, we will accept lower growth, we do worry a lot about pollution. Basically, as China is going 180 degrees on a lot of the things they've done for the past really, well, for most of our careers, uh, for, or at least the past 15, 20 years, um, commodities continue to, to crank up. Um, and I think that's a reflection of potentially what I was highlighting before, just the lack of investments that have been made in new uh, production capacity. And that's not just in, um, in commodities, but in manufacturing, uh, and just a number, a number of, of industries across the board. I mean, look, look at it this way. Um, I was once told that when the VC industry raises $30 billion in a given year, that's usually the top of the VC cycle. That, you know, when all the VC funds together raise $30 billion, that's usually the top, and you know that price, stupid prices are going to be around the corner. Well, last year, SoftBank by itself announced a $100 billion fund. So we've had billions pour into private equity, billions pour in to, uh, to the VC industry. But what investments have gotten out of all, these, all this money pouring in? In the past, you would have had things like Cisco and Xerox and Hewlett Packard and others. Uh, today, out of all that money that pours into VC, what we have is Uber, Lyft, Airbnb, Snapchat, uh, 
Dropbox or whatever else. What we have fundamentally is investments either in social media, when you look at your top 20 unicorns in the world, they're either a social media or what we've come to call in our firm overcapacity optimizers. You know, think Lyft, Uber, Airbnb. You've got a car, you're not using it, we can use it for you. You've got a room, you're not using it, we'll use it for you. Um, but none of that adds capacity fundamentally to our system. Um, instead, what we've seen and the commodity space in recent years has been uh, an extreme example of it is uh, a uh, consolidation in capacity. You've seen a record amount of uh, mergers and acquisitions, of private equity taking firms private, of, uh, of consolidation, uh, and this across a number of sectors. Um, and so now all of a sudden, you know, you have China saying, look, we're done adding capacity. Um, and I think that will lead a number of industries, not least of which commodities, which is what we're seeing today, to have genuine pricing power. Yeah, it's fascinating. I, I, I agree with every word of that, Louis. It's, uh, it seems to be the way it's going to me. I, I just want to shift uh, gears a little here because... On, on this, so, Go ahead. Yeah, so, sorry. Yeah. I, I just, if I can just interrupt really quickly, Grant. Yeah. I think, I think it's a very important... You, you use the word shift, and, and I agree. You know, our starting point when we allocate money is we say, all right, there's two, two forces that determine asset prices, inflation and growth. So you can have an inflationary boom or an inflationary bust or a deflationary boom or a deflationary bust. Now, for the past 30 years, we've basically shifted from deflationary boom to deflationary bust every seven to 10 years because growth, growth goes on a seven to 10-year cycle. But we've been pretty firmly planted in the bottom half of our four-quadrant diagram, basically moving from disinflationary boom to disinflationary bust and back and forth. Um, if we move to the upper part of the diagram, the, towards the inflationary boom or inflationary bust, that's a shift that only occurs every 35 to 40 years. Um, and thus it's a shift that most money managers have never gone through before, myself included. You know, my dad obviously has been through it because he invested money in the inflationary boom and bust before it became deflationary boom and bust. Uh, but, you know, he's 75. Um, most people haven't gone through, through that shift uh, from top to bottom. We've all gone through from left to right. We've never gone from top to bottom. Um, and so it's a shift that, A, most people have never experienced before, and B, uh, most people's portfolios are just not optimized for whatsoever because, you know, it hasn't happened in 40 years. So, you know, all the models, all the, the risk parity, all the, uh, the CTA models, et cetera, uh, could be at risk of seriously breaking down if such a shift were to occur. Yeah, you make a great point, Louis. I mean, this, this idea that we're moving um, from a deflationary secular trend into an inflationary one, um, you know, it seems, the evidence seems to be pointing heavily towards that. And, and I think you're right. I don't think anybody's really uh, equipped for that. I mean, this 35-year this, this uh, bond uh, bull market, um, if that has changed and we are going to go the other way, these things tend to move for a long, long time in the other direction. So I think it's definitely something we have to keep an eye on. Um, but just, just jumping back to China and, and just um, getting into the micro a little bit, we had, we had a story come out um, this week about Pudong Bank uh, and some bad loan data. And getting into the micro data, you know, the numbers in this thing um, are extraordinary. The, the, the story, for anyone that hasn't heard it, is that uh, 
the banking regulators uncovered um, some fake reporting from Shanghai Pudong Development Bank. They've basically been lending money to, to shell companies so they could hide bad loans at one of their big branches. But we're talking 1,500 shell companies and $12 billion. Um, you know, it's an extraordinary story. And when I read it first, it just struck me that maybe after the, the Congress and, and with the shift by, um, by uh, President Xi, it seems as though it might be time to flush out some of the, some of the bad actors. D does this strike you as something like that? Or is this just a story that, that's, that's found its time to be brought into the sunlight? No, I think you're right. Uh, I think it's it's time for that. I think there's another dimension. Uh, if you look at Xi Jinping and his big anti-corruption drive, the big anti-corruption drive was mostly uh, an attempt by Xi Jinping to clear out of the government the entire Jiang Zemin clique. Because um, if you remember, so you know Jiang Zemin was the president uh, before Hu Jintao, who himself was president before uh, Xi Jinping, uh, and basically Jiang Zemin kept his own guys uh, in power, and his guys were known broadly as the Shanghai clique because um, uh, CG, uh, Jiang Zemin's power base was, was all around Shanghai. And uh, those guys were indeed, there was a very hard, I mean, you could say, well, they're all corrupt, but I guess it's varying degrees. Uh, and the Shanghai clique did, you know, they, they did put a lot of money in their pockets. Um, and they also prevented Hu Jintao from, you know, following the policies that uh, he sometimes wanted to follow. Um, and so uh, when Xi Jinping came in, the first thing he tried to do, uh, and the, the, everything he's been doing uh, since then, really, and that was a big drive of the anti-corruption drive, was to take these guys to town. Now, Shanghai Pudong Bank is obviously uh, most likely one of the funding vehicles for some of the 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 more nefarious activities of, of the Shanghai clique. So you could look at this as, you know, one part of the continued anti-corruption drive slash uh, Xi Jinping taking down the, the Shanghai clique. Um, you could uh, look at it as one of the signals that, look, uh, we are serious about the deleveraging. We are serious about no more loans for just dubious projects. Um, you can look at it as uh, part of this message that, hey, it isn't all about growth anymore. Uh, we are going to start looking at how this growth has been generated. And it's, if it's been generated through dubious funds, you will, be, you will be taken down. Now, to your point, you know, $10, $12 billion is obviously not, I think it's, it sends a strong message, no doubt. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people will end up in jail over this. Um, and but it, it's not strong enough to uh, to lead to a systemic risk uh, for China. So, you know, I think if you turned around and wanted to look for dubious things at, at ICBC or China Construction Bank, you could easily find some. Uh, but then you, you'd risk uh, having a, a serious systemic issue. Um, the good thing about a Shanghai Pudong Bank is you can you send a strong message without creating uh, without creating a, 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 you know, a systemic risk for the system. Yeah, I think one of the things that struck me about the story is that obviously the accounting fraud that was part of it where they reported no bad loans and, and this was a way to that they were inflating their earnings and, and faking other data as well, according to the Bloomberg story. Um, I guess maybe in closing, you know, this is a problem that, that crops up again and again with China. We talked about GDP data and that obviously has, has its own 
issues of potential manipulation, and, and we know of some cases of manipulation in some parts of China. Taking the perspective of someone who's trying to look at Chinese data and, and look at Chinese numbers and either choose what to do in investing in China specifically, or even in making macroeconomic calls based on Chinese data, you know, what, what, what would you say is a good way to go about it? Are there numbers we can trust? Is there a sense that we can trust the general flow of numbers instead of specific numbers? Just kind of curious how you would advise an investor to look at China from a portfolio perspective, keeping in mind the, the accounting and numbers issues. Uh, there's, uh, I mean, that opens a real Pandora's box, uh, and we could talk about this for hours. I'll, I'll just make a, f- a few key points. Uh, the first, uh, you know, when you look at China, you have to acknowledge that it's a little bit like an impressionist painting. Uh, you're never going to get a very clear picture, but if you get enough little da- little points, you can kind of tell more or less what's happening. So you say, all right, there's a lake over here, and there's maybe people sitting over by that, that side of the lake, even if you can't quite tell if they're women or men. Um, so it's, you never get like a full realist picture. Uh, now you could say, well, it's the same with data everywhere. And that's true. Uh, the second point I make is the reality is, you know, China, uh, Chinese data has gotten better and, and does continue to get better. You know, you, we have to acknowledge that, you know, 15 years ago, China did start to become very important for the world. So everybody was looking at their data, but fundamentally it was still an emerging market with a fairly, uh, poor, statistical uh, arm, um, and, and that has been improving all the time, partly because, of course, the Chinese Communist Party itself wants to know what's happening, um, uh, which brings me to, uh, to, to the third point. Um, I think the Chinese uh, data will continue to get much better in the next five years, partly because um, of this shift in incentives. If the government tells you, hey, you're being measured on growth, uh, you know, again, imagine you're the governor of Anhui province and you're being told you're me- me- being measured on growth. Oh, and by the way, uh, you also get to tell us what the growth number is. Guess what? It's probably going to be better than, than what it really is, right? Um, you have every incentive to, to push that number up as much as you, as you credibly can stretch. Um, and, and so you've had a lot of that happening. And by the way, as they've shifted the incentive structure, you've already had a number of provinces come out and said, oh, well, maybe last year our number wasn't quite so strong. You saw it in the Mongolia, you saw it in Shandong. Um, and so, and I think, so as you shift the incentive structure in China, uh, the, the, data, the data will get better. Um, having said all this, the way I've always looked at Chinese data is the absolute number in itself is almost meaningless. The trend, however, is... Uh, is important. Um, and so what you really want to look at is the first derivative. Is inflation accelerating or not? Is growth accelerating or not? Are profits accelerating or not? Um, and even if the absolute numbers themselves can be, can be questioned, the, uh, the, the trend tends to be broadly right. Um, and when it comes to China, what matters the most is, as Keynes used to say, is uh, you want to be approximately right rather than precisely wrong. Uh, Louis, sadly, we've run out of time. Um, hopefully, we get to finish this conversation in person when I see you in, in a few weeks' time in San Diego. But until then, uh, just let the folks at home know where they can find out more about Gavco because it, it is one of the best research firms out there anywhere in the world. That's, uh, that's very kind, Grant. I, I do look forward to seeing you in San Diego at, uh, at Malden's event. Um, in the meantime, yeah, no, the, the best place, to be honest, is our website. Uh, 
our website, which is gafcal.com. Uh, that's yeah. Obviously, we we post all our stuff there. But that's the easiest place to get in touch with us. Fantastic, Louis. Uh, I can't thank you enough for joining us uh, this week, and uh, all the very best. Uh, I hope you enjoy the skiing. Thank you very much. Take care. Right, take care. Bye bye. All right. Well, Louis is uh, is definitely one of my go-to guys in China. He's he's always so thoughtful and has a, a really good perspective, having spent so much time in the region. Um, and throwing Tian Yang into the mix, uh, his incredibly insightful information really does give you a sense that there is change afoot in China. And I guess we won't know what that means, but I have to say um, my gut is that Lou is right and we are about to enter a period of inflation, how long it lasts for and how drastically the central banks try to clamp down it as anybody's guess, but I feel they're going to have to try. Sometimes, though, these forces are stronger than even the central banks, even though we may not remember they do occasionally get punched in the nose. Yeah, I was really interested in this point that there's, not to put words in his mouth, but almost a bubble in using excess capacity when so much of this excess capacity comes from China. Uh, it, it's, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here in, in a WeWork uh, trying to use real estate space for startups in, in the short term. And it, you never really think that places like this and, and like Airbnb and Uber exist because of China. But I, I, I love that uh, connection and that idea that as China shifts, all, all these things that we're used to it as the new tech economy could shift with it. Well, yeah, it's true. I mean, I don't, I don't know which way. I, I think it may not be quite so good for the unicorns as people think. I mean, it, it strikes me that, uh, that they are going to run into some headwinds with funding issues. They're going to run into some headwinds with uh, any kind of weakness in the stock market. And we've already seen... Um, uber softbank deal have mm. a vastly reduced valuation so it is interesting if that if that china mood changes it could uh, be another wall of worry for certainly the unicorns to climb all right well we have run out of time for another week amazingly um all that remains is you guessed it sing along with this at the back the legal disclaimer anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice these are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors. So do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, place your stops, and always trade responsibly. Next week, we have a feature on Bitcoin. Drum roll, please. We're going to talk to a few traders who are new to the game of trading and are happening to dip their toes in the water by trading Bitcoin and try and get some real-world stories to get a sense of what it's like to trade Bitcoin when perhaps you're not... Uh, a grizzled, grey-haired market veteran like me, or a closet genius like Alex. But uh, in the meantime, between now and then, if you've got an interesting question about this week's show, we would love to hear from you. So please send us an email or leave us a voice note at podcast at realvision.com. And if you enjoy what you heard, please subscribe on iTunes. And don't forget to leave those reviews. Leave a review. Leave a review. To keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and, of course, podcast episodes, you can follow us on Twitter at Real Vision. Uh, we're also on Facebook and LinkedIn. Just search for Real Vision. Yes, indeed. You will find us. You can follow me on Twitter at TTMYGH, should the mood take you. You can follow me at Aces Rose. And you can follow me at AIF James. AIF James. And don't forget that email, Bitcoin fans, James at realvision.com. Oh. That's it from us. We will see you back here next week. Thank you so much for listening.
You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.